podcast. This is the podcast where we talk about elements of the scriptures that have become real or help them become more real to us because we believe the more real they are, the more we can draw power out of them and apply them to our lives, and we need that power. I'm your host, Carrie Muelstein, and in this short cast, I'm just going to address a few elements from a few of the chapters of the first part of the book of Jeremiah, some of those verses that have spoken most to me and that have images or ideas that uh, I've really uh, learned from or that have touched me. Uh, of course, in my uh, other longer podcast with Avram Shannon, uh, Shannon which I th- think was great, uh, I just really enjoyed visiting with him. I always do. We touched on quite a few things regarding Isaiah's call, but there's one thing we didn't touch on that I would like to, to talk about. So we spoke in there in Isaiah chapter one about uh, Isaiah or uh, sorry, Jeremiah. We spoke in there about Jeremiah's call and Jeremiah being uh, nervous about this and feeling he was a child, but uh, we didn't touch on a couple of my favorite verses that I think uh, are, are really profound. And this is verse nine and 10, especially 10. So the Lord, then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my, meaning Jeremiah's, touched my mouth. And the Lord said unto me, behold, I put my words in thy mouth. So he is giving Jeremiah the things that Jeremiah should say. And he's going to explain to it what it is, explain to him what it is in verse 10. See, I have this day set thee over the nations and over the kingdoms to root out and to pull down and to destroy and to throw down, to build and to plant. So he's mixing some agricultural and some construction metaphors here. But note that the first set is all about tearing things down. So rooting out, this is when you try and get rid of uh, anything that's a problem in the soil when you're planting, right? You're going to root out all of the the roots of the plants that are a problem. Uh, And then we've got pulling down and destroying. This is like you're taking a building or something that's been built and pulling it down, and you're going to throw it down. So those are the first sets of things, to root out, pull down, destroy, to throw down, and then to build and to plant. Now, that's the order that it has to be. You have to get rid of the problematic stuff, then you can build with the right stuff and, and grow. Maybe I can share an experience that I had one time when we first moved from Hawaii to Utah uh, that kind of uh, highlighted this for me. I uh, In Hawaii, that was the first place I had a home. Before that, we were always living in apartments at UCLA and BYU and so on. Um, but uh, at our home in Hawaii, uh, I didn't have to do much to get the grass to grow. It, it just grew. And it was beautiful and I didn't uh, water it and I didn't do anything. And there were, they did some construction in our yard once and they ripped it all out and I didn't have to replant and just go back. So that was easy. And I got to Utah and it didn't work that way. Uh, and you had to do a lot of work to get your lawn to be good. So my second summer, when I decided I was going to do a lot of work, I decided I'd start putting fertilizer down on the lawn. And, and so I was uh, doing that and it was growing great. And then towards the end of the summer, uh, as I was fertilizing, uh, I ran out of fertilizer. And I thought, you know, I remember the people that lived here before. They left some fertilizer uh, in the corner of the garage. Let me go see if they have any of this. And I went and found some that seemed like it was the right thing. And uh, and I put it down in my mixer. I feel it was half full with my fertilizer and then half full with theirs. And then I did a, a thing that was just full of their fertilizer. I don't know if I misread the bag or if it was too old or something, but uh, their fertilizer killed my lawn. So the part where it was mixed, my lawn died in patches. The part where it was just their fertilizer, that whole section of my lawn uh, died so that nothing was growing. Nothing at all. It was just dirt. And uh, the sprinklers would come on and it was mud. Uh, nothing was growing at all. And I thought, well, that's a problem. So I went out and I, I planted some uh, grass and it didn't grow. 
So I put some sod down and it died. So it was clear that there was some bad stuff in the soil still. So I had to go remove like about six inches of soil and then go put some good topsoil down. And then I put some sod down and it grew beautifully and wonderfully and all was great. And, and it occurred to me that that's a, a pattern for our lives. And I think it matches what we read in this verse. You have to get the poison out. There was something poisonous that I put down that was in that soil. And I had to remove that before I could successfully grow good stuff. And that's what Jeremiah's task is. He's going to have to pull Judah down and then he can start to plant and build. And God has to do that with us as individuals. He's going to humble us. Whatever it is that's not good in our lives, he's going to humble us until we get rid of it. Hopefully we can do that on our own. We can uh, do what President Nelson just asked us to do, or we can get rid of our favorite sins. Or I, I think it was President Benson, I can't remember exactly who, but someone talked about the most important sin uh, uh, in your life, or the most important thing to repent of is the sin that you don't want to repent of. Uh, the sin that you don't want to stop doing. That's the most important one to focus on, right? We have to, to get rid of that poison, and then we can we replace it with the good. Uh, we build and plant. So it's just like in, in Isaiah chapter one, where he says, cease to do evil, learn to do well. We have to have both of those happening, um, but we have to be humbled and then we can grow in the right way. I thought that was a powerful lesson. Let's go to, to chapter two and a couple of verses that are really meaningful to me in chapter two. Um, we're going to start uh, in well, we're just going to summarize some of the first part where he keeps making allusion to the fact that uh, God took care of them in Egypt. Uh, and as they were coming out of Egypt, a place that was a wilderness with no water, and it was uh, had, well, let's read verse six. Neither said they, where is the Lord that brought us up out of the land of Egypt that led us through the wilderness, through a land of deserts and of pits, through a land of drought and the shadow of death, through a land that no man passed through and where no man dwelt. And I brought you in a plentiful country to eat the fruit thereof and the goodness thereof. Right? But when you entered, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. So he uses this desert imagery that uh, he will use so often, just like the Savior in his parables drew on everyday life things. Jeremiah is going to draw on experiences they're all familiar with, including the delicate countryside that they're in, where if they're getting enough rain, they're going to be fine. And if not, the, the, the drought and the desert aspects of where they live will be crushing. And so uh, as he does so, he reminds them of the true desert and wilderness that they came through the Sinai area as God brought them in and he took care of them and he brought them to a, a place that would naturally produce for them, but they didn't keep the covenant. And remember, this is part of the covenant that the land would produce for them when they uh, were keeping the covenant and it wouldn't when they didn't keep the covenant. So let's go down to verse nine. Wherefore, I will yet plead with you, saith the Lord, and with your children's children will I plead. And in some ways, that's that's talking about us. He's pleading with us, the descendants of uh, Israel, uh, the, all these generations later as we read this. For pass over the isles of Katim and see, and send unto Kedar, and consider diligently, and see if there be such a thing. Hath a nation changed their gods, which are yet no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which doth not profit. So see what he's saying? You can look all over the place and no one gives up their God. And their gods aren't even real gods. But my people give up their God and I'm a real God. So let's look at verse 12 and 13. 
Be astonished, O ye heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. Be very desolate, saith the Lord, for my people hath committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So let's talk about the climate in, in Israel. Uh, it rains. It gets a lot of rain, but it's in a very short period of time. Like a couple of months is when 90% of its rain comes. And then you've got like about eight months, seven months where there's no rain at all. So the way that they survived is they, they uh, dug pits and they would plaster these pits and then they would funnel rainwater into the pits. And then when the rainy season was over, they had these, they were called cisterns. Um, and so it's not a well where water is naturally producing. It's, it's a storage bin, or not bin, a, a hole that's plastered. And I will kind of encounter this later in next week's uh, interview with uh, George Pierce. But um, they, would, they would plaster and then you can just get all this uh, water, rainwater that filters in there. And they draw on that from the rest of their lives or the rest of the, the dry season. So that's that's the cistern. All right. So note what he's saying. You've done two stupid things or evils. You've given up me the fountain of living waters. This is living water. This is water that's just coming and flows. It's, it, it's produced spontaneously. So it can be a river, a spring, um, a well that has something that can flow. Right. It, it comes up and then it can flow out. Uh, those are living waters. And. Where Jeremiah lived in Anathoth, there isn't any living water. There, there is a spring that's a few miles downhill. And so my guess would be there were times in his life where he, uh, probably especially as a young man, had to hike down to that spring and get some water and hike back up the hill carrying heavy water, wondering why don't we live down where the spring is. Uh, by the way, I've gotten a lot of these ideas from a uh, uh, great uh, Jewish uh, author and, and uh, naturalist, uh, no, uh, let's see if I can remember his name correctly. Noah Haruveni, I think. Um, uh, he's the one that first got me to think about where Jeremiah lived and where the spring was. And since then, I've gone and hiked around there and driven around there and, and gotten a feel for it uh, and seen how real this is. But I would guess he, he had times where he's like, why don't we live down by the living waters? But they haven't just forsaken the living waters. They are relying on cisterns, but they're broken cisterns. There's a crack in the plaster. And the water is going to leak out. Now, God compares that, and you can see what a bad situation that is. He compares that to trusting in the world rather than him. That's a problem, right? That's a problem. So the question we have to ask ourselves, what are our broken cisterns? And let me suggest that all cisterns are broken sooner or later. They all break. They all leak. They all lose their water. Living waters are the only things that we can rely on that will always produce for us and always give us life and cleansing and so on. Uh, cisterns are always broken and they will always fail us. So you have to ask yourself, what are the broken cisterns in your life? What are the things that you're relying on that isn't God? Or that aren't God, depending on how many there are. And for I think we can say aren't. It's for all of us, there are multiple. What are the things we're relying on that aren't God? The thinking of the world, the ways of the world, our own power, prestige, whatever it is. Think about this. What is it that is your broken cistern? That's an image that is somewhat haunting to me as I think about living in a desert area and uh, having given up real sources of water and instead uh, relying on a source that isn't reliable. We're going to spend just a few moments in chapter 7 and then a few in chapter 17. So in chapter 7... We get this. Uh, it's it's this is a chapter to kind of help us understand how far 
Judah is falling. And this is about what happens in the temple itself. So verse one, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, hear ye the word of the Lord, all ye of Judah that enter in at these gates to worship the Lord. So he's standing in the temple to talk about the temple to highlight what's going on here. Thus saith the Lord God of hosts, God of Israel, amend your ways and your doings, and I will cause you to dwell in this place. So he's saying, repent, and I'll keep the covenant. That, that dwelling in that place, the temple and the promised land, that's, that's covenant imagery. Trust not in the lying words, saying the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Or these, so he's saying, you can't trust people who are saying, we've got a temple because the temple's here in Jerusalem will always stand. For if you th uh, thoroughly amend your ways and your doings, if you thoroughly execute judgment between a man and his neighbor, if you press not the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, and shed not innocent blood in this place, neither walk after other gods to your hurt. So notice all the things he's saying that they do. Uh, and then they need to stop doing it. They need to quit going after other gods. They need to quit shedding innocent blood. They need to quit oppressing the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. Note how often the prophets talk about that. And that, that oppression is typically in the form of not taking care of them the way they need to be taken care of. The law of Moses had set up ways to be able to take care of the poor. Uh, we did a podcast on that way back when we did the law of Moses. You could review that if you wanted. Um, but uh, it set up all sorts of ways for taking care of people who can't take care of themselves. And when you don't do that, when you don't use all of the things that are in place to help them, then you're oppressing them. Uh, if you're you're supposed to execute judgment between a man and his neighbor, you're supposed to make things the way they're supposed to be and, and uh, do things the right way. So if they do all that, if they, if they avoid all that, then they, he will cause them to dwell in this place in the land that he gave to your fathers forever and ever. That's definite covenant language. Behold, you trust in lying words that cannot profit. Will you steal and murder and commit adultery and swear falsely and burn incense to Baal and walk after other gods whom you know not? And come and stand before me in this house, which is called by name, and say, we are delivered to do all these abominations. So they're doing all this stuff, and then they come to the temple anyway. And they say, we're fine. We're doing what we're supposed to do here in the temple. And as long as we're doing what, as long as we're going to church on Sunday and fulfilling our calling, it doesn't matter all this other stuff we're doing. He says, in this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes. Behold, even I have seen it, saith the Lord. Uh, and then he just goes on to talk about the way that they are not keeping their covenant and they're polluting the temple. And, and it's worth spending some time. I'd encourage you to spend some time there, some really profound uh, things in there. We're going to touch on one last couple of verses that, again, uh, have really struck me and seem very real to me. Uh, and this is in chapter 17. So it starts out with the sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron and with the point of a diamond. He's saying, wow, you've really, really uh, gotten into your sins so much so that they're graven upon the table of your heart and upon the horns of your altars. Now, he's going to later talk about wanting a different thing going on in their heart and the chance to have a different heart and different things being implanted in their heart. But they are writing their sins in, in their hearts right now with just carving it deeply in. That's become part of their identity and who they, they think of themselves as. Um, so because of that, he's going to give them the contrast that we get in verses five through, say, eight. Um, Thus saith the Lord, cursed be the man that trusteth in man and maketh flesh his arm, whose heart departeth from the Lord. So this we can say this, cursed be the man who does not have God prevail in his life more than anything else, who 
uh, gets more of his information and his ideas and his values from social media and the world than he does from God, who isn't making more time for Christ, uh, who isn't uh, hearing God. Uh, these are all ways things President Nelson has talked about. Uh, but I, I think really this idea of letting God prevail in our lives more than anything else is what is being spoken of here. Is something else prevailing even equal to or more than God in your life? Some way of thinking, some way of valuing things. Then you trust in the flesh and you make flesh your arm and your heart departs from the Lord. And this is the description. For he shall be like the heath in the desert. So a small plant in the desert and shall not see when good cometh, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness in a salt land and not inhabited. So he's talking about the really desert area around the Dead Sea, where you can get a couple little plants that can grow, but they can never grow well, never grow big. And when rain comes to most of the country, it's not going to come there. And they're just, they're always going to be barely surviving. Barely, barely surviving. So he's comparing our lives when we don't let God prevail more than anything in our lives to this. To this poor struggling plant that has no chance to ever be bigger as opposed to what we get in verse seven and eight blessed is the man that trusteth in the lord and whose hope the lord is so trust in the lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding right and all thy ways acknowledge him or let god prevail in your life more than anything else make more time for christ follow the prophets gain spiritual momentum this is what things are like for him for he shall be as a tree planted by the waters, and that spreadeth out her roots by the river, and that shall not see when heat cometh, but her leaves shall be green, and shall not be careful in the year of the drought, neither shall cease from yielding fruit. So you can find in that same area, just go a little ways away, uh, where there are springs, and it's desert and terrible all around, but where there's a spring or an oasis, big, beautiful trees that are green and growing and huge and lush and thriving, and it doesn't matter when even up uh, elsewhere where there's more greenery and then a drought comes and the, the rains don't come and those things die, these trees by the spring always thrive, always are huge, always doing well. That's what happens when you trust in the Lord or you let God prevail in your life more than anything else. Then it doesn't matter what happens around you or what's going on in the environment. You will have a lush and beautiful life. Now, that's really just a different way of saying, go to living waters and get rid of the broken cisterns in your life. Tear down, pull down, and then build and plant. Right? These are all different ways of saying the same thing, and, and Jeremiah and God use different images to help us understand these same things. And it's my hope that we will let God prevail more in our lives than anything else, so that we can be the lush trees that are experiencing living waters. Uh, and that's my hope and my prayer in the name of Jesus Christ.